Hey, if you need new sunglasses, if you would like to get new sunglasses, know that Shady Rays, for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, is offering a fantastic deal. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use this promo code Al Galdi. Shady Rays sunglasses, they are the best. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses. No questions asked. Wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Go to ShadyRays.com and use that code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yeah, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use that code Al Galdi for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. And away we go. Episode 566 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, May 5th. 2023. It is Cinco de Mayo 2023. Happy Cinco de Mayo. May your cervezas, may your mojitos, may your tequila go down smooth. As the great group War sang many years ago. Yeah, there you go. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Well, Cinco de Mayo has to do with a military victory for Mexico, but it is on this Cinco de Mayo that we have a commander's development pertaining to the country of Colombia. Next segment, news on both the sale of the commanders and on the team's quest for a new stadium. As we on Thursday had multiple reports regarding the composition of the Josh Harris group, including it having one of the richest families in Colombia, the Santo Domingo family, uh, La Familia de Santo Domingo. Uh, And we on Thursday morning had a report from the Washington Post that the commanders are lobbying federal legislators to give Washington, D.C. control over the RF. K Stadium site. Oh, we have some stuff to talk about. Talk about it, we shall. Next segment. Uh, then I'm going to welcome on a special guest, Kent Lee Platty, NFL draft analyst for Pro Football Network. Uh, Kent Lee Platty is the man who invented relative athletic score, aka RAS, aka RAS, uh, which has revolutionized the way that we and NFL teams view and interpret testing. For NFL draft prospects, uh, Raz has very much become a thing in recent years. Uh, Washington, in two of the last three NFL drafts now, has taken a number of players with high relative athletic scores, with high Raz numbers. Uh, We're going to talk about that. Uh, The Raz specifics of a bunch of the players who the commanders took in the 2023 draft, some NFL draft theory, and more. Uh, Kent Lee Platty really has changed the game That is the NFL draft. We're going to talk with Kent coming up shortly. Uh, Also on the show, I will discuss a bonkers wins for the Nationals and Orioles on Thursday afternoon. Uh, The Nats, a 4-3 walk-off win over the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park. Outfielder Alex Call, bottom of the ninth, a first pitch leadoff walk-off homer that hugged ever so snugly, the left field foul pole. Uh, we also in this game had Nats manager Davey Martinez using not one, but two relievers, Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan, each for a third consecutive day. Each guy got in trouble 
Uh, but each guy ended up ultimately being part of an ads win. Boy, Hunter Harvey being used for a third consecutive day, given his substantial injury history, really was something. But I'll take you through all that went down. Uh, and the O's on Thursday afternoon, a 13-10 slugfest win at the Kansas City Royals in a game in which the O's blew an 8-1 third inning lead, but also overcame a 9-8-8 inning deficit. 17 wins in 22 games for the O's. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Kevin Lunn on what the end of the sale of the commanders will be like. Writes Kevin, hey Al, hope all is well. Question, whenever Josh Harris's group finally signs all of the papers and makes the sale official, do you think that Jason Wright will be in the room? And as the final signed papers are handed over to complete the sale, we get a, there it is. Regardless, I'm requesting a there it is audio clip on the pod once the sale is officially completed. Counting down the days, my friend. Thanks for all of the draft coverage this past weekend. Always appreciated, man. Uh, Thank you for the email, Kevin. Boy, I sure hope that Jason Wright gives us another there it is. There it is. Yes, there it is. And especially with the way that our guy Jason Wright has been acting lately, you know, speaking to various media outlets, distancing himself from the current ownership of Dan and Tanya Snyder, talking up the benefits of the new ownership. Uh, Jason may well read a love poem (laughs) to the Josh Harris group once the sale of the team is completed. Uh, Jason right now pretty clearly is in self-preservation mode. Uh, He pretty clearly is in let me try to keep my job as team president mode. And by the way, I'm not mad at him for that. Uh, He's doing what a lot of people in his position would be doing. I just find (laughs) what he's doing to be pretty transparent. Going to be very interesting to see what Josh Harris does with Jason Wright once Josh officially owns the Commanders. Ron Rivera seemingly is safe as head coach going into the 2023 season, given how deep into the offseason we now are. The NFL calendar seemingly is keeping Ron safe as head coach, at least going into the coming season. The NFL calendar doesn't really do anything for Jason Wright. I mean, if Josh Harris has someone in mind to run Commanders business operations, and that someone isn't Jason Wright, and that someone is free to be hired, uh, then there seemingly isn't anything stopping Josh from firing Jason once Josh officially owns the Commanders. Uh, Email from Luke on what has happened to our football team via Dan Snyder's near 24-year run as owner writes Luke, to steal a quote from The Wire when Bunk chided everyone's favorite anti-hero Omar, makes me sick, mother bleeper, how far we done fell. Uh, Last week was my grandma's 100th birthday. Family from all over America gathered in our nation's capital to celebrate. It was a celebration of life at its finest. One of the strongest fibers that has weaved my family together for generations has been our love for the Washington Redskins slash football team slash commanders. My uncle, cousins, nephews, and dad were the biggest Skins fans I knew, and we had a group text for years to discuss or blow off steam about the team. Uh, The thread admittedly has died down over the years, but when we'd all get together, someone would always bring up the Skins and we'd carry on for a bit about the comings and goings. Nope, not this week. With all that's going on with the burgundy and gold, sale of the team, draft, Sam Howell as quarterback, Chase Young's fifth-year option being declined. Six of the formerly biggest Skins fans I knew were completely silent. The team has become such an afterthought, meaningless when the team used to mean so much, such an inconvenience that we couldn't even be bothered to mention something that used to dominate our discussion. I'm not kidding you. Not long ago, we scheduled our lives around Skins games. Now, the Skins are irrelevant to my entire extended family. In spite of all of the scandals, losing, and blunders, Dan Snyder's lasting legacy will be most associated with apathy. We no longer love or hate the team. We just no longer care. It makes me almost feel for Josh Harris and company. I don't see an obvious path to restoring fanhood. Snyder leaving hasn't rekindled my family. New coaches, franchise quarterbacks, general manager saviors all tried and failed. The only thing that may work is a new stadium in which we can rappel up the siding and surf along the shores of the sandy beach near the front entrance. 
That said, I still listen to your show every morning because how else am I supposed to get swole <laughs> at 5 a.m.? I need more foam, more glow sticks, more cargo shorts out. Uh, thank you for the email, Luke. A reference to the Friday 5 a.m. foam parties that I used to do on the Morning Blitz on radio. Well, as long as they're still listening to this podcast, Luke, uh, that is what matters the most. Uh, very good email from Luke. You know, there's no doubt that what has happened with Luke and his family has happened with a lot of people. Uh, they have gone from loving the football team uh, to then being angry about what was happening with the football team to now no longer caring about it the football team. And as we all know, in a lot of ways, the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Uh, I would say this, though. I wonder if Luke and his family, as I wonder with other former hardcore fans of the team who now feel apathetic about the team, would still feel apathetic if the team got really good again. Like, it's one thing right now with the sale of the team still not even official and with the team not having had a winning regular season since the 2016 season and not having had a 10-win regular season since the 2012 season and not having notched a playoff victory since the 2005 season, uh, to feel apathetic about the team. But would that apathy still be in effect if the team was a perennial playoff team, uh, a Super Bowl contender, maybe even a Super Bowl winner? The team being really good again wouldn't bring back all of the fans who have left or who have become disinterested. But I do believe that the team being really good again would bring back a lot of those fans. The NFL is arguably the number one entertainment entity in this country. I mean, if you go by television ratings, the NFL is unquestionably the number one entertainment entity in this country. You're telling me that the team consistently being among the best teams in the NFL wouldn't reignite the passion of fans who have left or have become disinterested. I just have a hard time believing that. But there's no doubt that the team becoming really good again is a tall task, okay? I mean, the team hasn't been really good in three decades. Going back to before Dan Snyder bought the team. Dan bought the team in May 1999. The team already was in a rough way. The decline of the team really started with the 1993 season. Uh, but hey, happy 100th birthday to Luke's grandma, uh, and if Luke or anyone else in his family hasn't yet bought Grandma a gift for her 100th birthday, here's a terrific idea. <laughs> Shady Ray's sunglasses. Yeah, happy birthday, Grandma. Here are some Shady Ray's sunglasses. Uh, Shady Ray's, for listeners of this podcast, is offering a great deal, a deal worthy of Grandma's 100th birthday, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the promo code Al Galdi. Shady Rays sunglasses, they look good, they feel good. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's affordable and durable with clear optics for whatever you're doing outside. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses. No questions asked. You can wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. So go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yeah, you're hearing that right. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. And get this, if you don't love your sunglasses, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you've been thinking about getting new sunglasses, now is the time. Shady Rays. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. That's ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Also, Shady Rays has done some great work, has donated over 20 million meals to fight hunger with Feeding America. Shady Rays, look good and feel good. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, before we get to our special guest, the man who invented relative athletic score, RAS, the man who invented RAS, Ketley Platty, NFL draft analyst for Pro Football Network to talk commander's draft. Uh, we on Thursday had news regarding the sale of the commanders and on the team's quest for a new stadium. So Thursday marked three weeks since the glorious news of April 13th, the multiple reports that commander's co-owner and co-CEO Dan Snyder had agreed to sell the team to a group led by Josh Harris for $6.05 billion. Now, the reports did say that the agreement was not exclusive and was not signed, meaning that another bidder still could buy the commanders. And as things stand right now, as far as we know, the agreement still is not exclusive and still has not been signed. But also, as things stand right now, as far as we know, no other bidder has entered into an agreement to buy the team, and it sure is not looking like another bidder will be entering into an agreement to buy the team. Uh, Mike Ozanian is the assistant managing editor of Forbes Media. He, on April 18th, came out with a piece with a detailed breakdown of the Josh Harris Group's bid for the commanders. Uh, Ozanian reported that Harris would own 30% of the commanders and be the managing partner, and that there would be 17 limited partners, including Washington, D.C. area billionaire Mitchell Rails at 12% and NBA legend Magic Johnson at 4%. But what about the other 15 limited partners? Well, we now know of two more of the limited partners and have received confirmation of another limited partner. Uh, We on Thursday had multiple reports that the Santo Domingo family of Colombia as in the country of Colombia, not Columbia, Maryland, <laughs> not the District of Columbia. Oh, no, no, no. The country of Colombia. Uh, the Santo Domingo family of the country of Colombia is part of the Josh Harris Group. Yes, the Josh Harris Group has ties to Colombia. Uh, we do not know how much money the Santo Domingo family is putting into the commanders, but uh, the family is worth an estimated 12 billion, according to Bloomberg. Uh, Yeah, the Santo Domingo family is not small time. I love that last name, by the way, Santo Domingo. (laughs) You know, that's a great last name. But, you know, you think about the Josh Harris group. It needs money not just to buy the commanders, but also to pay for a lot of, maybe slash probably a majority of, maybe even the entirety of a new stadium and a new team facility. Well, the Santo Domingo family is bringing some serious capital, some serious money, some serious dinero to the Josh Harris group. Uh, The Santo Domingo family is led by Alejandro Santo Domingo, who is a senior managing director of the New York-based investment advisory firm Quadrant Capital Advisors. Uh, Additionally, Alejandro Santo Domingo is on the board of the beer giant Anheuser-Busch InBev Uh, in which he has an estimated 1% stake. Anheuser-Busch InBev is what Anheuser-Busch became after it was bought out by the Belgian brewing company InBev in 2008. Uh, Also, we on Thursday had multiple reports that Mitchell Morgan is part of the Josh Harris Group. Uh, Mitchell Morgan is the CEO of Morgan Properties, and Sportico on Thursday confirmed what WUSA 9 sports director Darren Haynes first reported on April 18th, that Mark Ein is part 
of the Josh Harris Group. Uh, Mark Ein is the owner of the Washington Castles, which is uh, Washington, D.C.'s team in world team tennis. So slowly but surely, we are learning of who exactly makes up the group that is the Josh Harris Group. You know, for those of you who are, or at least were, pro wrestling fans, this is like finding out the various members of the NWO, the New World Order, you know? (laughs) The Josh Harris Group, uh, in a lot of ways, is a New World Order for our football team. But, you know, Josh Harris, Mitchell Rails, and Magic Johnson are the three founding fathers, just like Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, and Scott Hall were the three founding fathers of the NWO. And now we're finding out about new members of the group. We need the various members of the Josh Harris group to reveal their membership a la the way the NWO did things back in the day by ripping off shirts that reveal t-shirts that read JHG, Josh Harris group. Who is down with the JHG? Uh, Meantime, news regarding the Commander's Next Stadium. Uh, The Washington Post on Thursday morning reported that the commanders are lobbying federal legislators to give Washington, D.C. control over the RFK Stadium site. And of course, the reason for this is that D.C. wants control of the site in order to offer it as a site for the Commander's New Stadium. Uh, There have been multiple factors that have made Washington, D.C. as the site of the team's next stadium, shall we say, complicated? (laughs) Uh, Maybe the biggest complicating factor has been that the land on which most people who want the new stadium in D.C. want the stadium, the RFK Stadium land, is federally owned. Washington, D.C. does not own that land. The federal government owns that land. Uh, Now, D.C. gaining control of the RFK Stadium land has come up many times previously. Heck, consider what happened a little less than a year ago. Uh, The Washington Post on May 31st, 2022 reported that according to Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton of Washington, D.C., a disagreement between Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and Phil Mendelson, chairman of the Council of the District of Columbia, had, quote, for months prevented the introduction of a bill in Congress that would allow the city to buy and develop the abandoned RFK stadium space end quote. Uh, Then we had the Charles Allen letter. Uh, Charles Allen, a Ward 6 member of the Council of the District of Columbia, the D.C. Council, uh, he on June 9th, 2022, led a majority of the D.C. Council in sending a letter to Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton thanking and supporting her work to bring the RFK stadium site under D.C. control, but also saying that the D.C. Council would not support an NFL stadium as part of the future of the RFK stadium site. What has become clear is that Mayor Bowser wants the commander's next stadium in D.C., but uh, many others do not, including many D.C. residents, uh, many of whom, of course, aren't from this area and could not care less about the commanders. Uh, Said Mayor Bowser of the commanders in this report from the Washington Post on Thursday morning, quote, we know there were a lot of obstacles to them getting on the right track, including their name, including their ownership. And those things have been addressed. So now I think everyone should be focused on what's next. End quote. Yeah, Mayor Bowser was a big anti-name person. In fact, an interview that I did with her in 2020 made news in the whole name saga. June 12, 2020, uh, Mayor Bowser appeared on the show that I did with Rick Doc Walker on the Team 980. I asked her if the Redskins name was an obstacle to their next stadium being in D.C. She said that the name uh, was an obstacle both locally and for the federal government, uh, which leases the RFK stadium land in D.C. She also said that it was, quote, past time, end quote, for the Redskins to, quote, deal, end quote, with their name. Uh, Well, (laughs) whether people like it or not, the name has been dealt with uh, and the ownership is being dealt with and the commander's next stadium being in Washington, D.C. is gaining at least some momentum. Uh, As you may recall, we in early March had multiple reports that NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell in December had told Mayor Bowser that the league supported her efforts to gain control of the federally owned land on which RFK Stadium sits for the purpose of the commanders in D.C. striking a deal for a new stadium for the team on that land. Look, with the stadium search, and remember the phrase stadium search is short for a search for land on which we'll have not just a new stadium, but also a new team facility and likely a lot more. But with the stadium search and 
I know that I may be in the minority on this, but I do not think that the stadium search is DC or bust. Uh, I do think that a stadium in Maryland or Virginia could work. People talk about how bad the traffic with especially a stadium in Virginia would be. The traffic for a stadium in D.C. would be horrendous. And you can say that the stadium in D.C. being right next to a metro stop would help. And yes, uh, that would help. But a lot of people don't ride the metro, A, because they don't like it, B, because it's not exactly the most reliable transit service in the country. Metro, in recent years, has undergone a lot of construction and has had to undergo a lot of repairs. And C, a lot of people don't ride Metro because they don't feel safe on it uh, and or at Metro Station. So I don't think that the commander's next stadium has to be in Washington, D.C., but I totally get that the team's next stadium being in D.C. is what most fans of the team want. And I do think that the team's next stadium being in D.C. could be a great thing. I just don't think that the situation is D.C. or bust. But here's the bottom line off this report from the Washington Post on Thursday morning. The momentum for the new stadium being in D.C. is back on to at least some degree. The commander's current lease at FedEx Field is set to expire in September 2027. We now are in May 2023. We may well be at a point at which the team has no choice but to be at FedEx Field until at least through the 2026 season. I mean, team president Jason Wright in an interview with WUSA 9 chief investigative reporter Eric Flack on April 1st, 2022 said that the commanders would be playing at FedEx Field at least through the 2026 season and possibly beyond that. Uh, The team has had a really hard time igniting what the team has always wanted, a three-way bidding war for a new stadium between Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. New ownership for the team is a game changer in so many ways, especially with this stadium situation. So while seemingly nothing with Washington, D.C. is ever easy, what so many want, the commander's next stadium being on the RFK Stadium site in D.C., does appear to have at least some juice for the first time in a while. We shall see if the commander's next stadium and next team facility are in Washington, D.C. But already in D.C. is the great law firm of Paulson and Nace. It has been in D.C. for decades. Uh, founded in 1979, Paulson and Nace is dedicated to promoting the rights of seriously injured persons and their families. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is widely respected throughout Washington, D.C. and West Virginia for the firm's accomplishments both in and out of courtrooms. Chris Nace and Matt Nace, they are dedicated trial attorneys who do not balk in the face of large insurance companies or well-known businesses that have had practices or products that are directly related to the root of your harm. And by the way, a big congratulations to Chris Nace, who was just named the 2023 Barry J. Nace Trial Lawyer of the Year. Uh, This by the D.C. Trial Lawyers Association. Paulson and Nace does not accept Low settlement offers that benefit the people who cause clients harm more than the offers benefit the clients. And this is because Paulson and Nace is not afraid to take a case to trial. And that's because Paulson and Nace wins trials. Paulson and Nace has secured millions of dollars in verdict and settlement amounts for clients to better enable them to care for themselves and their families. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. Make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. Just make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Well, coincidence or not, the Commander's 2023 draft marked Washington for a second time in three NFL drafts, taking a number of players who excel in RAS. Uh, RAS, R-A-S, is Relative Athletic Score. 
Uh, it is a revolutionary way of analyzing NFL draft prospects. Uh, RAS grades a player's measurements and NFL scouting combine slash pro day metrics on a 0 to 10 scale compared to his peer group. Uh, the idea, and it's a good one, is to give context to all of these things that we hear and read about every NFL draft season. You know, a player's weight, height, 40-yard dash time, bench press, vertical jump, broad jump, etc. Like, what do all of these numbers actually mean, contextually speaking? Well, Raz attempts to tackle that issue. Uh, Washington, in the 2021 draft, took a number of players with high relative athletic scores. Uh, linebacker Jamin Davis, offensive lineman Samuel Cosme, safety Derek Forrest, edge defender William Bradley King, edge defender Shaka Tony, all had relative athletic scores well above nine. Uh, and corner Benjamin St. Jews, receiver Diami Brown, and long snapper Cameron Cheeseman. Yes, the Cheeseman. Uh, all of those guys had relative athletic scores above eight. And in the 2023 draft, corner Emmanuel Forbes, defensive back Quan Martin, center Ricky Stromberg, and tackle slash guard Braden Daniels all had relative athletic scores well above nine. And edge defender KJ Henry had a relative athletic score well above eight. So what's going on here? Has Washington made Raz a focal point in the team's drafts? Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast right now, the man who invented Raz, Kent Lee Platty. Uh, he is an NFL draft analyst for Pro Football Network. He is a Navy veteran. You can follow Kent on Twitter at MacBomb. Uh, hey, Kent, how are you? Fantastic, man. Glad to be back. Yeah, so relative athletic score is a really good tool. Uh, for those who don't know, how and why did you come up with RAS? Yeah, RAS is uh, it's meant to be a contextualization of player testing metrics. So it takes player testing and it looks at it on a, a 0 to 10 scale. So anybody can look at a 0 to 10 scale and understand what's good and what's bad. You know, 0 is never going to be good. Um, so that tells you 10 is great and 5 is right in the middle. Uh, when I did the graphics, everything's stoplight color-coded, so green, yellow, and red. It gives everybody a very easy way to understand when a player tests, whether that's good or bad compared to their position group. Um, and it's just been a lot of fun to put it together and see the types of trends that NFL teams have been putting out. Um, NFL teams have their own analytics departments. They have dedicated staff that, that look at this stuff. They have access to more information than we will ever have access to. Uh, but I think that RAS is a very useful analog for the types of analytics testing that NFL teams do during the draft process. You know, something that has stood out to me is how prevalent Raz now is in NFL draft conversation. Is it accurate to say that Raz has gained a lot of usage and popularity in recent years? Oh, for sure. I, I think the fact that it's so simple to understand and it's, it's easy to, to really look at that and figure out where a guy lands. And once people started looking at how many players test highly and end up on NFL rosters, um, versus guys that don't test as well, who tend to fall down draft boards, who tend to get drafted later if they're drafted at all. Um, people are starting to see what we've all, always kind of known, that the NFL loves those great athletes. Uh, Raz just puts a number on it. And I think that people are starting to realize how useful that is when they're looking at their draft prospects. So as I said earlier, Washington, for a second time in three NFL drafts, took a lot of players with high relative athletic scores. Does it strike you that the team is, in fact, using Raz as part of the team's draft methodology? Do you know if NFL teams in general are using Raz? I know that it's very similar to what several teams use. I brought it up during the draft when the, the Indianapolis Colts, the Green Bay Packers, the Philadelphia Eagles, um, these teams traditionally have been have drafted great athletes. Um, Raz is a very useful analog in that it's close to whatever it is that some teams are using. Uh, every NFL team has their own metric that they use, but whatever they use, Raz is close. And, and I think that people are starting to realize now as they pick up on what their teams are doing draft over draft, they can see when their team is doing it now. Um, Washington's a team that has needed to get more athletic for a while, and they've been doing that. And Raz is a good way to illustrate that they've been doing that. I first had you on the podcast in April 2021, and the reason was that Washington had just signed a tight end named Samus Reyes, who, per relative athletic score, had tested as the most athletic size-adjusted tight end to ever enter the NFL. Well, things did not work out for Samus Reyes with Washington. Obviously, Raz guarantees nothing with a player, but 
generally speaking, is there correlation between Raz and player production or not so much? We tend to see that the better players tend to score well by Raz, and the, the players who score poorly tend to not be as successful. Um, it's important that we understand that that's a tendency, right? We're talking probability, not possibility. There's always going to be a guy who slips through the cracks, who doesn't test well, gets drafted late, not drafted at all, but still manages to latch on. Uh, it's not a surefire thing. The, the failure rate for NFL prospects is astronomically high. I mean, we, we think about it in guys that get drafted, but there's several thousand draft prospects every draft year and only about 250 draft picks. So most players that try out for the NFL never make it, and that includes people who test well. Um, but when you look at Pro Bowls, uh, number of 1,000-yard receiving seasons, number of 1,000-yard rushing seasons, number of seasons with over 10 sacks. All of these things tend to show a very high correlation between players who tested very well and players who have found success in the NFL. Um, I'm trying to integrate a bunch more metrics to the site so that we can see that in other ways. Uh, But for the ones that we have right now, it's a pretty promising correlation. Generally speaking, are the RAS scores of today better than the RAS scores of yesteryear? It's hard to say fully because we don't. We have more data now than we've ever had before. We have access to player testing data that we never had access to before. Even on the site, though, anything prior to 2000 is a little bit questionable as far as how accurate it is. And I'm, I'm very open about that. I talk about it fairly often. Um, it's the best that we have because we don't have access to the same type of information that we have now for draft prospects. Um, I would say that guys who tested prior to 2000, 2005, and and so on, um, they tend to have lower all-time scores. Um, If we were to compare them against guys all the way up to 2023, their score would tend to be lower um, in general, but it isn't universal. We still have guys who tested phenomenally back then who still test phenomenally. Champ Bailey, um, even Mike Mamula, who who famously had a a ridiculous combine and got himself drafted way early when he wasn't projected that high. Um, Those numbers hold up. So overall, does that trend show currently with the limited data that we have? Yes. I'm not sure that it would if we had access to the same amount of data every year going back that far. Interesting. Uh, With which positions is there the greatest correlation between RAS and player production? Several. Tight end is probably the biggest one because we don't have any examples of a player who scored poorly for RAS that has done well um, in in the last two decades. Um, Jordan Reed is the only tight end who has had at least one 750-yard season and had a poor RAS, but like most of his pro career, he was injured at the time that he was testing. So the numbers that he did have were limited by his injury, and he didn't complete all of the testing. So it's kind of got a huge asterisk next to that. Um, other than him, we don't have anybody who tested poorly at tight end and has found success as a receiving tight end anyway in the NFL. Um, it tends to show up a lot for pass rushing edge ed, uh, edge guys. They're, it's almost exclusively made up of the top-tier athletes. Um, one position we don't see it as much is wide receiver and running back. The general trends are there, but we have guys that stand out a lot more as having tested poorly and still done well in the in the NFL. Dalvin Cook is a big example. Antonio Brown, Anquan Bolden, big examples of guys that didn't test well and found success. Uh, but for ones that we we generally correlate it with, uh, tight end, um, edge rushers, offensive tackles. Um, and I think cornerbacks would probably be another one. We're discussing the Commander's 2023 draft with Kent Lee Platty, NFL draft analyst for Pro Football Network and the man who invented Raz, relative athletic score. All right, so looking at the Commander's 2023 draft class, uh, the two highest relative athletic scores were by offensive linemen, uh, Arkansas center Ricky Stromberg, who the Commanders took in the third round, uh, a Raz of 9.57, ranked 26th out of 579 centers from 1987 through 2023. And Utah offensive lineman Braden Daniels, he as a guard had a Raz of 9.56, ranked 63rd out of 1,421 guards from 1987 through 2023. So the commanders in Stromberg and Daniels got two truly elite offensive linemen in terms of Raz. Yeah, in terms of athletic ability, I think that that tracks. And the the most important skills or most important individual traits for offensive linemen tends to be that 10-yard split, the shuttle, 
um, and the broad jump, depending on what your scheme is. So we're talking, speaking generally those three things. Um, and they did very well in each of those individual drills. Um, Braden Daniels had a 97th percentile 10 yard split. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's when you look at those individual traits, you start to see where they stand out and the types of offensive linemen that they're trying to find. Um, Stromberg was one of my favorite prospects in the draft. Personally, he, he has that, that reputation of not being athletic that Arkansas offensive linemen get. And despite the fact that he tested 95th percentile among centers, that narrative struck all the way till draft night when he was drafted, there were still people going, I'm not sure he's that athletic. It's like, he's already shown you. (laughs) That is funny. And that is the beauty of Raz, right? I mean, it is an objective methodology that can dispel myths about players. Uh, So you said that there is a pretty good correlation for defensive backs in terms of Raz and player production. The Commanders took a defensive back in each of the first two rounds of the draft. A Mississippi State corner, Emmanuel Forbes, in the first round, a Raz of 9.26. Illinois defensive back, Quan Martin, in the second round, a Raz of 9.29. What do you make of those guys from a Raz perspective? Yeah, Forbes has everything that you want except for his weight. He's 166 pounds when he tested. He's expecting to be a lot to play a lot larger than that. Um, that's an extreme outlier, and that's really the only risk that you have from an athletic standpoint for Emmanuel Forbes. Um, it's under um, 20th percentile for um, sorry, it's under second percentile for a quarterback. Um, so it's very, very low in terms of comparison to other corners. Um, but he ran a 4.35, um, you know, 1.49 10-yard split, which is phenomenal. Um, his vert and his broad were both very good. You know, from a testing standpoint, if he does bulk up and he doesn't lose much or any of that speed and explosiveness, there's really nothing to worry about from an athletic standpoint. He's a phenomenal athlete. All right. You also said that edge defender is a position for which there's pretty good correlation between Raz and player production. The commanders traded up in the fifth round of the draft to take Clemson edge defender K.J. Henry. Uh, What do you see with him through the prism of Raz? Yeah, and he had one of the lower scores for the for the commanders in this class, even though he had an eight point three eight. So that's that's a fantastic score. Um, it's mostly on the back of his speed scores. He ran a four six three, which is ninety fourth percentile. Um, he had a ninety seventh percentile split, uh, but he's about about average size for a defensive end. He's not overly large, a little bit underweight from what you would expect to. I know that seems weird at, at two hundred and fifty pounds to think that that's underweight, but by comparison, that is smaller than most edge rushers. Uh, his explosion drills were right about average. Um, but if you have a guy with that kind of speed, you're really looking at that pursuit and whether or not he can be an adequate run defender. The speed stuff or the the pass rushing stuff, he has traits to do that. It's just there's other things that aren't tested that you need to pay attention to when it gets to that point. You're looking at his hand usage and what types of moves he does, whether he has any, any counters. Uh, but there isn't anything significantly questionable on his card in terms of athleticism as it comes to a, a pass rusher. Uh, the commander's sixth round pick, Kentucky running back Chris Rodriguez Jr., his Raz 7.71. Uh, where are you with Rodriguez, for whom, per what you said, Raz may not be so significant? And it's because there's so many different types, right? It's just like wide receiver. There's so many different ways to win at the running back position. Uh, Rodriguez is a bigger guy. He's uh, 5'11 and a half, 217 pounds. That's a bigger guy. He ran a 4'5'2, which is not elite for a running back in general, but for a guy of that size, that's pretty dang good to have a guy with that kind of speed uh, at that size. So it, it offers you a little bit of options for a guy that you want to use in a power role, or maybe you want to use him in a um, more dynamic role where you have him doing a bunch of different things. Uh, he doesn't have that breakaway speed to provide you that you know elite scat back type of scenario um, as a receiving back even. Uh, but he's fast enough that you can do those things with him for certain play types and play designs and not have to worry about his speed being a liability in any way. So it offers you that versatility of play calling that you don't really have with smaller, speedier guys or bigger, slower guys. He's kind of in that middle, so you can do a lot more with him. A general question about the NFL draft. Do you think that the league as a whole should be better at the draft? especially on first-round picks. I mean, we earlier this week learned that a staggering 14 of the 32 first-round picks in the 2020 draft had their fifth-year options declined. 
Should NFL teams be better at drafting, or is the nature of the draft such that it's a crapshoot and the hit rate is never going to be what we want it to be? A little bit of both. I, I don't think the hit rate's ever going to be what we expect them to be because we expect everything to be kind of linear, right? We expect everything to be, if I get a first-round guy, he's got to be either a starter or an elite top-tier guy. And then we scale that down each round, right? And it's, it's really not that way. That's not really how it works. I, I think the NFL does an adequate job of evaluation and how they evaluate players and, and figure out who's going to be good and who probably isn't going to be good. Um, and I say that because a lot of the guys who just aren't very good in college never get drafted. There, there really aren't any players that are, are legitimately bad that get drafted year after year. Occasionally you'll have a guy with, with, you know, people have some hot opinions on, uh, but guys that we universally understand are probably not going to make it in the NFL. They don't get drafted. So I think the NFL does a good job of identifying those types of guys where I think the NFL struggles is valuation, understanding the value of certain picks, both by position and by the player um, and where to take gambles. You know, the, the Jets took a guy in Will McDonald this year that I don't think anybody really thought was going to go into the top 15, um, but he has all the athletic tools to be an elite pass rusher in the NFL. He has those tools. That's, that's always been a part of his game. The question is just whether or not you take a guy like that with that much potential, but that many things that you need to work on in the top 15. And that's where I think the NFL struggles. And I'm not, I'm not calling out the Jets um, specifically as being wrong in this instance. Um, I just think that the NFL in general has trouble with valuing players and figuring out what they should do in terms of how they spend their resources. Um, and where it gets tough is sometimes you don't have a whole lot of control over that because you might be sitting in a position where you don't really have a player at a high value position that you like as much to, to draft there. So um, is it really bad value? It's, it's hard to say. From, a, from a, a fan perspective, we don't have access to the same amount of information, but it seems in general year over year that the NFL struggles more to value players where they should be than they do to evaluate them correctly. It's funny hearing you say that because I know that you're a big Detroit Lions fan. Uh, what would you think about what the Lions did in the first round of the draft, taking a running back in Alabama's Jameer Gibbs at 12 and then taking a linebacker in Iowa's Jack Campbell at 18? I literally joked. After they took the running back, I started making jokes about valuing players. Just speaking, and, and it's, it's funny that it worked out this way for the team that I follow, right? But I was I literally called out Jack Campbell as their next. No <laughs> around, and it's not that he's a bad player, and it's not that I don't I, I don't like Jack Campbell. I do I, I like him very much. But I was like, watch, they're going to take a guy like Jack Campbell next because if they're going to take a running back top twelve, they may as well take a linebacker in the first round because why wouldn't you at that point? You're already taking the lower value guys. Um, and then I joked on Twitter about watch next one's going to be a tight end. They're going to get that low value trifecta, and they took Sam Laporta out of Iowa. Um, then they took a safety, so they just kept going. They took a third-round quarterback. They did all the things value-wise that you don't do. Uh, it's going to be an interesting draft to follow because they have a lot of good players. Um, I'm just not sure that they spent their value too well. Hey, you're not alone in that thinking. Uh, final question. Is there anything that you wish the NFL would do differently with its testing of NFL draft prospects? Oh, God, so many things. I could spend hours just talking about the things that I think the NFL should do. Um, it's less about what I think they should do differently in terms of different drills and that stuff. Um, I think that the NFL needs to take a, a very a very serious look at how they're measuring the drills that they are. Um, using the, the laser star and the, the stopwatches to do everything is a very antiquated method of doing speed testing. Um, there's a lot of things they could do with high-speed cameras that would allow them to do precise timing, um, which they could, and it's all going to be taped. And if you're doing that stuff taped and you have it in a high-speed camera, all you have to do to fix the timing is adjust your starting point. And it would allow the NFL to be much more precise in the way that they're timing players. They love doing that simulcast stuff. And if you had high-speed cameras set up, you could, you would have that by design you would have a simultaneous camera setup for every single player. And I think that's scalable to pro days too. So it would allow you very little difference between the pro day and the combine. So you could do much more precise comparisons. 
Um, stuff like that, where you you make sure that it's always like for like, and you're not you're not um, ignoring the the environmental factors from pro day to combine and, and vice versa. I think would be a really big boon to the NFL, uh, but they haven't given me a call yet. So, well, the NFL should give you a call. And I'm not just saying that because you're on my podcast. I mean, you understand testing of NFL draft prospects exceptionally well. Relative athletic score has revolutionized the way that people look and understand the testing of NFL draft prospects. Heck yeah, uh, the NFL should talk to you. Kentley Platty, NFL draft analyst for Pro Football Network, Navy veteran, and the man who invented relative athletic score. The man who invented Raz. Uh, Kent, Thanks a lot for your time. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. All right. Great stuff from Kent Lee Platty. Uh, If you have like 20 seconds, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. Give this podcast a high raz. Uh, You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review doesn't have to be long. It could be just a sentence or two. But the ratings and the reviews help out the podcast a lot. So thank you very much for doing them. Hey, the Nationals are playing well. The rebuilding Nationals, the team that in the 2022 regular season went a major league worst 55 and 107 with a major league worst run differential of minus 252. That team is playing well. A 4-3 walk-off win over the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park on Thursday afternoon in a game that lasted for just one hour 55 minutes. Boy, is the pitch clock system a beautiful thing. But the Nats in this four-game series against the Cubs won three games. The Nats now have won four of their last five games. The Nats now are 9-7 and seven since their 4-11 and 11 start. Uh, now are 12-12 and 12 since their 1-6 and six start. Break down the record any way that you want, but the Nats, the boys, they're playing some baseball. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Nats manager Davey Martinez and the boys are doing well, all things considered. So this win on Thursday afternoon was a walk-off win. Alex Call, uh, he was the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter. He went one for four with the one being a walk-off solo home run. Call in the bottom of the ninth smashed a first pitch leadoff walk-off homer that hugged the left field foul pole off Cubs reliever Brad Boxberger for a 4-3 Nats win. The homer only went a projected 364 feet per stat cast. This was not some moonshot home run, but this was a home run. Uh, Cole entered that plate appearance 1-for-15 in the series. Uh, make that 2-for-16. Uh, great job, Alex Cole. Here was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Thursday afternoon on Alex Cole's walk-off home run. Look, he hit the ball good all day today. He got, he got robbed twice by a third baseman. Um, this time he got the ball up in the air. I mean, he, he crushed it. You know, it wasn't just a just open. It was state fair, you know, and uh, what an awesome way to win a game. You know, we guys battled. They battled back. Um, and we, we beat a pretty good team with a pretty good lineup, you know, and uh, it, it feels good. And it's, it's awesome for these guys to have that feeling because we're so young. Um, and it's great to see those guys smiling and having fun. So um, we got a long road trip. You know, we'll go, go back and try to do it again tomorrow in, in Arizona. More on that later in the segment. But the Nats won this game on Thursday afternoon despite totaling just six hits and no walks. But two of the six hits were home runs. The Nats do not hit many home runs. The beauty of the home run is that you don't need a lot of hits when you hit home runs. And the Nats on Thursday afternoon hit two home runs. Uh, Lane Thomas, he was the Nats starting right fielder and number six batter. He went one for three with a three-run home run. Uh, Thomas in an Nats three-run second, had a three-run home run to left center field for a 3 nothing Nats lead. The homer went a projected 408 feet per stat cast. And get this, this was the Nats' only at-bat in the game with a runner in scoring position. The Nats in the game went one for one with runners in scoring position. That was it, but the one hit with a runner in scoring position was a three-run home run. Uh, Thomas in the Nats 5-1 loss to the Cubs at Nationals Park on Monday night also homered. He in that game as the Nats starting right fielder and number six batter one for three with a solo home run. Uh, What was his first home run of this regular season? Lane Thomas in the 2022 regular season hit 17 home runs. So perhaps the Lane train is starting 
to find his home run stroke. A crazy game for the Nats from a pitching standpoint. Uh, let's start with this. Patrick Corbin was good. Really good. As in 2019 good. Patrick Corbin, your Nat starting pitcher on Thursday afternoon. Two runs in seven innings, but even that doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, the two runs that were charged to him came in the top of the eighth with him out of the game. So he tossed seven scoreless innings before being charged with two runs in what was a three-run Cubs eighth. Uh, Corbin gave up just three hits, all of which were singles. That stands out as much as anything because a big feature of Corbin's decline over these last three seasons was him giving up a ton of hits. Uh, Corbin on Thursday afternoon, six strikeouts versus no walks. And Corbin pounded the strike zone, 80 pitches, 57 strikes versus just 23 balls, a strikes to balls ratio of nearly two and a half to one. Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Thursday afternoon on Patrick Corbin. Changeup, right? Changeup was, was was awesome. You know, um, I think I think it I think it kind of messed those guys up a little bit. You know, because you know they're gonna they're gonna look in. You know, um, but him throwing the changeup effectively like that got him kind of off balance a little bit. So, um, but he hey, he's thrown the ball six out of the last seven times really well and today was today was was really the uh, the Patrick Corbin that we've seen before so um he's he's doing awesome man he really is so if he can continue to do that and keep us in the games we'll win some games for him yeah I wouldn't say that Patrick Corbin's doing awesome uh but he over his last four starts has been respectable and he on Thursday afternoon was better than respectable. He was really good. Uh, so Patrick Corbin on Thursday afternoon, very good. And the Nats bullpen on Thursday afternoon, certainly not great, but two of the Nats top relievers were operating on fumes and found ways to come through. Talking about Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan. Uh, Hunter Harvey in the top of the eighth, pitching for a third consecutive game, officially allowed one run, but he, in the inning, also allowed two inherited runners to score. Uh, Harvey came into the game in the top of the eighth with runners on first and second, no outs, and the Nats holding a 3-0 lead. He gave up an opposite field RBI double by ex-Oriole Trey Mancini off the right field wall on an 0-2 pitch on a ball that, by the way, was very poorly played by right fielder Lane Thomas. Uh, Harvey gave up a one-out RBI sack fly by Miguel Amaya to the left field warning track on a ball that was nearly a three-run homer, and Harvey gave up a two-out opposite field RBI single by Nico Horner through the right side of the infield on an 0-2 pitch to tie the game at three. So this was not Hunter Harvey at his best, but again, he was pitching for a third consecutive day. And then, so too was Kyle Finnegan. Uh, Finnegan pitching for a third consecutive game, tossed a scoreless top of the ninth, despite getting into trouble. Uh, he issued a leadoff walk of Ian Happ, then gave up a double by Seiya Suzuki off the left field warning track, giving the Cubs runners on second and third with no outs and the game tied at three. But Finnegan then generated back-to-back swinging strikeouts of the Cubs numbers five and six batters, Cody Bellinger and Patrick Wisdom. And Finnegan then got Trey Mancini to fly out for the third out. What an escape act by Kyle Finnegan. And then the very next pitch of the game resulted in Alex Call's walk-off home run. A tremendous win for the Nats, who concluded a 4-3 and homestand. Uh, Davey Martinez, during his post-game press conference on Thursday afternoon, on Hunter Harvey and Kyle Finnegan, each pitching for a third consecutive day. I was hoping to keep one of them out, and Patrick was throwing the ball so good. Um, it didn't work out that way, but those guys were both, you know, rare, you know, they both came up to me and said, hey, you know, we got a chance to win the game. I'm in. You know, and, and that's that's what you want from those guys in the back end of the bullpen. So, uh, and Fren- Frenigan, I can't say enough of what he did. I mean, that was that was impressive. You know, and uh, he's he's the one guy that that's down in the bullpen. I always say that um, the more we use him, the better he feels. When he sits for a while, you know, he comes out and it's, he's not so sharp. So um, today today you can see what he can do when when he's just getting out there and being used. You know, at the right time. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't give in. He doesn't quit. You know. He understands his role, um, and he's just trying to get out. And, and man, he, he, I mean, uh, for me, you know, I know Alex Call hit the big home run, but that was the moment. That was the moment. You know, right there when um, he came in and, and and did what he did and got those big strikeouts for us. That was huge. 
Yes, it was. Uh, next up for the Nats, a six-game trip out west. Uh, three games at the Arizona Diamondbacks, followed by three games at the San Francisco Giants. Game one at the Diamondbacks, Friday night at 940. Josiah Gray will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Uh, game two at the Diamondbacks, Saturday night at 810. Mackenzie Gore will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And game three at the Diamondbacks, Sunday afternoon at 410. Trevor Williams will be the Nats' starting pitcher. So the Orioles on Thursday afternoon played, guess what, a wild game. Uh, Seemingly all that the O's are doing this season is playing wild games, but this was another Orioles win, a 13-10 win at the Kansas City Royals on Thursday afternoon in a game in which the O's blew an 8-1 third inning lead, but also overcame a 9-8 eighth inning deficit. But yes, the O's, ultimately, Joe Angel, were again in the wind column. And the Orioles again in the wind column. That is correct, Joe, the wind column. Uh, the O's ended up winning two of the three games in this series at the Royals, uh, what is a seventh consecutive series win for the O's, who during this span have won 17 of 22 games. Now, this span of seven consecutive series wins has seen six of the Orioles' seven opponents be teams that currently have losing records. The O's are about to begin a stretch of 22 consecutive games against teams that currently have winning records. So in theory, we are about to find out uh, just how good the O's are. But for now, they are good. 21-10, and 10, second best record in the American League. Uh, what an odd series this was for the O's. They, in their two wins in the series, games one and three, totaled 24 runs, but the Orioles' loss in the series was a shutout loss. Uh, this was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame session with reporters on Thursday evening. Well, that was this was definitely it was a strange it was a strange three games, honestly. And um, you know, yeah, just the way our guys, you know, we've we've we, I thought our, we built character last year, honestly, and we never felt out of a game, and um, you know, we played good baseball and prove to ourselves that we can win and I think going into this year you know it's it's um it's pretty much the same group of guys with, with adding you know a few extra really good players and we've kind of just kept it going you're, you're not going to win pretty every single night this was definitely not one of those games um but you know fortunately we got we got the win yeah, the O's got some big offensive performances in the two wins at the Royals. How about Ramona Rios on Thursday afternoon? He came off the bench as a pinch hitter and then played third base. He went two for two with a pinch two-run single and a two-run double. Uh, Arias in an Orioles two-run eighth, a pinch go-ahead two-run single through the left side of the infield to give the O's a 10-9 lead. And Arias in the inning stole second and third base. And Arias in an Orioles three-run ninth, a one-out two-run bases loaded opposite field ground rule double to right center field for a 12-9 Orioles lead. Uh, The man for whom Arias pinch hit, Gunnar Henderson, he is the Orioles starting third baseman and number eight batter, one for two with a two-run homer and a walk. Anthony Santander as the Orioles starting right fielder and number four batter, two for five with a two-run homer and a single. Uh, Both of those homers came off the Royals starting pitcher, Jordan Lyles, who was with the O's last season. Uh, Lyles on Thursday afternoon, eight runs, six earned, in five innings, but the Orioles starting pitcher on Thursday afternoon was not good. Grayson Rodriguez was bad. Grayrod was bad. Grayrod allowed six runs in three and two-thirds innings. He gave up eight hits, three home runs, a triple, a double, and three singles. He issued a walk. He had three strikeouts, uh, 77 pitches, 47 strikes versus 30 balls. Here was Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Thursday evening on Grayson Rodriguez. Well, you know, for me, he got hit hard. I mean, there was, he was either missing or he was center cutting balls and, and um, not working ahead in the count enough. Uh, he's got to be able to look at his fastball a little bit better. Everything was kind of mid-thigh high and, and um, you know, they took good swings off him. Yeah, I mean, the O's in this game had an 8-1 third inning lead. That screams for the starting pitcher to work quickly, throw strikes, and eat up innings. But instead, the O's blew that 8-1 
third inning lead. And Brandon Hyde had to use five relievers who had very mixed results, by the way. Three of the relievers, CNL Perez, Danny Coulomb, and Felix Batista combined to allow four runs in three innings. Yanir Cano did toss two scoreless innings with three strikeouts. Next up for the O's, a three-game series at the National League leading Atlanta Braves. Game one, Friday night at 7.20, Dean Kramer will be the Orioles starting pitcher. Game two, Saturday night at 7.15, Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And game three, Sunday morning at 11.35, Tyler Wells will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 567. We'll have a lot for you on the commanders. Also, I'll discuss the rest of our Washington, D.C. area sports weekend. The Nationals this weekend have a three-game series at the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Orioles this weekend have a three-game series at the National League leading Atlanta Braves. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.